0: I don't believe in God because science and religion don't match up. How could I believe when Christians are such hypocrites? How can I believe when children are dying of starvation all around the world? How could I believe with all the hate in the world? I don't believe because of God's view of women. I don't believe because of God's view of sexuality. Because the Bible is a fairy tale. I get it. It's hard. You come into a place like this and you're told to believe in God, that God is real. But everywhere else in culture, you're told that God is stupid and stupid people believe in God. We live in a world that pits science against faith, that, that, that people who believe in science are the smart people and people who believe in faith are the dumb people, right? I mean, this is Everywhere It's like, when you watch one of these debates on television, you know, the atheist versus the theist, or the atheist versus the Christian, and, and who do they bring out as the atheist, right? They bring out like a Richard Dawkins, you know, this world-renowned uh, physicist who, you know, speaks with an English accent and he's so smart and he's a professor at Cambridge and, and, the, and he's got more letters behind his name, you know, than, than you could possibly know what to do with. And then who do they bring out for the Christian to debate? They bring out like Joe and he lives in the swamp and he's a plumber and his wife makes their own butter. And you know, it's like, if you don't believe in God, I'm gonna poke your eye out, you know? And it's like, uh, they, they just pit this argument that it's, it's dumb people versus smart people. The Christians are the dummies, and the smart people are people who've rejected God and rejected, uh, you know, things of faith. And, but, but what if that's all wrong? What if we're believing a lie that media is selling us? What if there's actually more evidence in science that moves you toward faith? What if if science is really rooted in faith? What if science is really rooted in the Christian story, in the Christian worldview? I think that it is. And I think it's worth talking about. I think it's worth spending some time discussing, has science finally crushed God? Now return to Carl Sagan's Cosmos. Edited for Rednecks. I'm Carl Sagan. Just how old is our planet? Scientists believe it's four... Bi- hundreds and hundreds of years old. I mean, suddenly from nowhere, he suddenly decided to create a world. I'll make a world. That's what Make a world. Yes, that's what I'll do. Rivers. Seas. Mountains. Boom. Everything's there. 40%, 45% of the American people believe literally in Adam and Eve, believe literally that the world is only 6,000 years old. Mm. I mean, that's a shocking figure, and mm. you can't duck out of it by saying, oh, sophisticated theologians mm-hmm. don't, don't believe it. Unfortunately, what sophisticated theologians believe isn't really relevant to what the majority of Christians do believe. But you know it's like the guy doesn't believe in evolution so he just he doesn't believe in science if you believe that god designed us in his or her own image uh, and gave us the intelligence to figure out all the things we've been figuring out, why would we not have the intelligence to figure out how the earth was created from here? There is a new trend in parenting, which is they are teaching science and rational thought instead of uh, religion, crazy. Um, There are a lot of very religious scientists around. Uh, I think the problem is, is that in our school systems, And to some degree, and this is where it is relevant, with school boards around the country that are uh, mandating curriculums and textbooks, uh, you start seeing this weird watering down of scientific fact. Apparently, people with these deeply held religious beliefs, they embrace that whole uh, literal interpretation of the Bible as written in English uh, as a worldview. And at the same time, they accept uh, aspirin antibiotic drugs, <laughs> airplanes, but they're able to hold these two worldviews, and this is a mystery. You see, if we take something like any fiction, in any holy book, in any other fiction, yeah. and destroyed it, yeah. okay, in a thousand years' time, that wouldn't come back just as it was. Yes. Whereas if we took every science book, yes. right, and every fact, and destroyed them all, in a thousand years, they'd all be back, because all the same tests would be the same result. I have heard people say that science is always closing the gap between what we know and what we don't know. And that's true, right? That gap is getting smaller every single year. And so before science became uh, part of the forefront of our lives, uh, when people didn't understand things, they would often use God or religion to close that gap. So for example, uh, hundreds of years ago, when people would hear... Uh, thunder, they would say that the gods were angry or God was angry, right? Or when people would read the Bible uh, and there would be this description of uh, a person who would be demon-possessed, they would You know, now we would say, well, that was because uh, they didn't understand schizophrenia or uh, epilepsy. And so they just attributed it to demon possession. But people say that eventually, though, our knowledge through the sciences will grow and grow so much so that science will close the gaps and will push God out. And some people say because of this, science has crushed God has eliminated God, has destroyed the need for this made up God that we have. And you've heard this, right? The issue of the gaps, that science will eventually fill in all of those gaps and eliminate God altogether. As a matter of fact, I would say that science goes beyond science many times, that science has begun to wage war on people of faith. For, for example, uh, Dr. Uh, Lawrence Krauss, a world-renowned physicist, uh, wrote an article in the ever-popular New Yorker magazine, and uh, this was the title of his article, All Scientists Should Be Militant Atheists. Wonder what that guy thinks, right? That's the title of his article, All Scientists Should Be Militant Atheists. And here's what he wrote in the article, quote, this commitment to open questioning is deeply tied to the fact that science is an atheistic existence or an enterprise. That, in other words, uh, of, of, of course, uh, we are we are going to be open because we're atheists and thus Christian people, people of faith are not open at all, right? And he's saying that, that science belongs to atheism. Uh, he says this, quote, it's ironic, really, that so many people are fixated on the relationship between science and religion. Basically, there is none. There isn't one, right? Uh, in, in other words, smart people believe in science, Dumb people believe in faith. Religious people are out of touch. They're out of sync. They're backwards, right? And if you pay attention to anything to media, right, anything in our educational circles, this is what's being taught, that science belongs to the atheists and that Christian people, people of faith at all, um, they're simply out of, tr- of touch. Cross, Krauss goes on to say this. It's inevitable that it, science, draws people away from religion and from God. Um, And friends, can I just humbly but confidently say that this is not only a pipe dream, but this is false. That science will never, ever crush God or eliminate God. Let me just say, let me build a little case for you. Now, I don't mean that in any sort of arrogance at all. Uh, The great atheist thinker... uh, Theoretic uh, physicist, cosmologist, author, uh, Stephen Hawkins, uh, a brilliant man. Uh, in his book called The Grand Design, Hawking said that he proposed to give the answer to everything. He called it the theory of everything. Pause for a second. He's a brilliant man, but that's arrogant even for a brilliant man, right? Yeah. To give the rationale to everything. But it, really what he was saying throughout the book was that, was that science, if it hasn't explained everything, it eventually will. And thus, there will be no more God. As a matter of fact, in this book, uh, um, he says on page five, and I found this really, really interesting. He says, not only is God dead, but but philosophy is dead because, uh, because science has killed both God and philosophy. And what's really interesting to me is that theologians like me, people of faith, Christian leaders like me, we didn't have to respond to Hawking's because the philosophical community, they did it for us. As a matter of fact, the head of philosophy of the Department of Cambridge University, at Cambridge University wrote a response letter to Stephen Hawking, and this is what it said. Uh, he said, quote, uh, Maybe the remarkable Professor Hawking has... Hasn't recognized that we've kept up with his discipline, science, much more than he has kept up with ours, philosophy. In other words, science can't explain everything. Science doesn't own the market on truth. For, for example, love cannot be explained by science. Right? You you put together 100 of the smartest people on planet Earth, you put them in a room, and you say, tear love apart, pick love apart, try to figure love out, explain it. I don't care how many degrees they have, I don't care how smart they are, nobody in the world of science can explain love. Because science isn't equipped to answer that sort of a question. It is a different sort of a question altogether. Love is not a physical thing. Sex is a physical thing, but love isn't. Love is something utterly different. My kids are home educated. Yes, we're that family, and uh, we, we educate our kids at home. And we taught our kids about English and grammar. And as a matter of fact, love is called uh, l- love is called an abstract noun, right? Because uh, you can't touch love. It's abstract, but you know it when you when you see it. You can't personally describe or scientifically describe love but you know it when you experience it right it's an abstract sort of a noun and here's here's my point on all of this is that science doesn't own truth science doesn't corner the market on on truth faith and people of faith like me we are not afraid of truth truth matters to us deeply and we want to pursue truth no matter where it leads us. It's very, very important. Um, and so there's this great divide. As a matter of fact, on one side, you got people like Mark Twain. Anybody remember who Mark Twain was? One of the great American authors from the 1800s. Uh, he, he says, when talking about faith, is this. He says, faith is believing what you know ain't true. It's holding on to something that you know is not true, right? Uh, Richard Dawkins, the evolutionary biologist, author, and perhaps the the best-known atheist on planet Earth today, he describes faith like this. Listen to what he says. He says, faith is persistent false belief in the face of strong contradictory evidence. In other words, in other words, faith amounts... It's a little more than wishful thinking. Someone who has faith uh, in, in, in something has no evidence, that faith-filled people are simply uninformed people and they like it that way. Uh, faith-filled people are stupid people and refuse to engage a modern world. Uh, so on one side you have this, this faith-filled people who deny the sciences, but the people of the science community, they have all the evidence, thus they have the corner and the market on truth. And so, like Dr. Krauss says, There is no relationship between faith and science. But on the other side, there are very smart people who disagree. Very, very smart people who think that that there is a rationale to faith, that faith is reasonable and thoughtful. Uh, People like Um, Like John Lennox. John Lennox is a a world-renowned mathematician. He is a uh, chair-holding professor at Oxford University. And uh, he says this. He says, faith is a response to evidence not rejoicing in the absence of it. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen... Uh John Lennox uh give a lecture. I mean he's this old pudgy English guy and he has a great accent. Uh but if you ever his lectures are all like two hours long, and when you get done listening to him, your mind is blown up. I mean you just go, wow, amazing, right? He's just one of those guys. John Lennox says it something very different. He says, No, 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 no. Uh faith is a response to evidence not rejoicing in in the absence of it. My friend, Biola professor, uh, PhD, Sean McDowell, he says it like this, about this idea of the mixture of faith and evidence. He says this. He says, faith is not belief in spite of evidence, but belief in the light of evidence. So so who's right? It it seems like people couldn't be further divided uh, on this whole issue, right? So let me throw in what the Bible says about faith into this whole mix, because it's interesting how the Bible moves us into this world of faith. Here's what it says in the book of, uh, of Hebrews, chapter 11. Very simple and definitive statement on this idea of faith. Listen, it says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And Now, we could unpack that all weekend long. But at the end of the day, you read a statement like that, and you go, well, see, there you go. The Bible expects, expects blind faith, it, it expects thoughtless faith. But I don't think that's the end of the story. Because if that was true, I'm not so sure I would go down that road. Because God did not give me a mind for no reason at all. Amen. And God did not give you a mind for no reason. At all. As a matter of fact, it goes further into the, into the text of the scripture where there's this guy named John. He was one of the very earliest followers of Jesus and he had come to put his hope and his faith in, in Jesus. He really did believe that he was God made flesh. And here's the thing about John. John wanted other people to understand this. John wanted other people to come to faith. And so he began to track the life of Jesus and he wrote it down and he gives a very short summary of why he, he, he did this. Why he wrote his little book called The Gospel According to To John. Uh, And and it says it like this. John chapter 20, verse 30, it says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of the disciples. And so, in other words, there were things that went on between Jesus and his closest followers that nobody else was privy to. So there was some behind-the-scenes stuff for them, um, which are not recorded in this book. But... Listen, but these things that are recorded in this book, they have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is saying the whole point of me dedicating my life to write this account of the life of Jesus is so that you would have a firsthand, trustworthy collection of the evidences about Jesus and so that your faith would not be just blind faith alone, but so that it would be uh, informed faith, organized faith, thoughtful faith that you could examine it and figure out if it was true for yourself. That's why he wrote it. Now, Jesus weighs into all of this. Want to hear what Jesus said about this whole idea of how important truth is? Listen to what he says in John's writing. John records one time, Jesus is talking about this, and John records it. In John 8, he says this, Jesus speaking, he says, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And so listen, 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 listen. So for, for me... And for Christians like me, if you're a skeptic in this room, if you come in and you're like, I'm not sure I can buy this, you know, God and science isn't lining up for you, and you think you've got to make one side choice or the other, we are with you. We are not against you. Truth matters to us. People of faith ought to be the forerunners of truth. We ought to be the seekers of truth, because Jesus said that if we find truth, real truth, that it will set you free, that it will give you purpose and direction and hope for your life. And so we're with you. We're not against you. And so here's what I would like to do. Uh, Can we just start by saying we all agree, no matter where you come in at, uh, a skeptic or a believer, an atheist or a theist, can we just all agree that truth is really important? Come on, can we just agree that truth really matters and that that's what we're after? Okay, so if it's okay with you, I would like to tackle this idea of, of has science crushed God? And I want to do my best uh, to give you some rational thought, um, some thoughtful thought, and I don't pretend to be the smartest guy in the world, and I don't pretend to be able to do this, but I hope that you at least have some things to think about deeply over the week to come because of what we're going to discuss today. And and so uh, I want you to know that faith and science are not always at at odds with each other. Certainly there are going to be times that we disagree, but but I want you to know that people of faith are not stupid, people of faith are not thoughtless and blind, or even arrogant. We are seekers of truth. That is what we ought to be. And so here would be my first thought. I'm going to give you some what I call myths. These are just my my thoughts. Um, take them from what they are. Okay. So here's the very first thing. I'm calling it the myth of conflict. Uh, the myth of conflict. Um, it is the myth that people who believe in God don't believe in science. You heard that on there, on the little video, right? That that's just, they dismiss us as we just aren't rational. We just don't believe that science and God or science and faith are always in conflict uh, with one another. But the truth is, friends, that across all of the disciplines, Even at the university level, the deeper people are delving into the sciences, into philosophy, into psychology, history, archaeology, and such, all of the evidence, or the evidence is mounting in such a way that it is actually pointing more and more people toward God, not away from him. And you will never be told that in the world of media. Um, There's often this myth that's being created uh, that sociologists call, it is the myth of the secular society. Uh, As a matter of fact, if you were to go back 100 years ago, when the worlds of cosmology and biology were really being developed, Uh, the Enlightenment era philosophers were saying by the 21st century, there would be no more God because science will have answered all the questions. Science will have pushed God out of the marketplace. Science would have destroyed the very notion of God because modern people, they were saying 100 years ago, modern people will not need God anymore because biology and the like will will explain it all away. And so they would say things like, in the 21st century, there would be no more Christian church. But the truth is, now more than ever, the Christian church is flourishing not only in America, but around the world. And not only, not only the Christian church, but faith in general is alive and well in this world. And, and there's something going on that the new atheist movement finds utterly shocking. Uh, they are finding that, that some of the people at the very forefront of their sciences are leaving the world of science uh, as from an atheistic perspective and moving toward this theistic understanding of the world of science. The deeper people go, it's driving them uh, to this thing called faith. Uh, As a matter of fact, listen listen to this. Uh, And there's such a problem with it for people who are in this world. Uh, Quentin Smith is a professor of Professor of Philosophy at Western Michigan University. Uh, He is very popular in the scholastic circles. He is an ardent atheist, and he has started to bemoan the fact that so much of the philosophical world of the sciences and in the world of psychology and philosophy have begun to move toward the Christian worldview. It's really bothered him deeply. He wrote about it in Philo Magazine, which is the leading magazine about philosophy in the United States. Uh, He said this, quote, The field of philosophy is beginning to de-secularize in the universities across America. A full one-quarter to one-third of philosophy departments now consist of theists, those people who believe in God, and are generally, he says, Christians. And this upsets him. And, and it makes him mad. And the reason Smith is upset is all centered around one guy. Uh, if you do the back study, there's a guy named Alvin Carl uh, Plantija. And he is uh, what most people consider to be the world's foremost philosopher. His writings are incredibly inter- uh, intellectual and influence, uh, in, in incredibly influencing in the world of scholastic study. And he has moved from the world of uh, maybe atheism or agnosticism to full-blown theists. As a matter of fact, Alvin is now the department chair of philosophy. He lives in Michigan, and he uh, is a philosophy chair at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, and he's become a very ardent, outspoken um, Christian. And he is tackling this idea of of where does faith find its realm in the scientific world? And he's doing it in a way that is convincing more and more people to follow him into faith. And so there is this myth that Christians don't believe in science. There is this myth that smart people don't believe in God. But, but the truth is, is people of faith want truth. We seek truth. Um, but in the average person's mind, you know, if you watch television, uh, Christians are people living in the swamp, like me, home-educating their kids. No teeth. You know, they don't—they don't use deodorant. You know, they don't think they wear. You know, uh, Oprah's the Antichrist T-shirts. You know that kind of thing, and, and they just. They they belittle and and try to make us sound irrelevant and unthoughtful. But the reality is that people uh, of faith embrace the truth. And and in the worlds of science and biology and and philosophy and all those things, uh, Christians are really taking the lead in a lot of it. As a matter of fact, uh, there's a guy named Anthony Flew. Many of you may have heard of him. Back in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, he was the world's leading atheist. He's a philosopher. He's a scientist. uh, Brilliant, brilliant guy. And he was a militant atheist. But his latest Book came out in 2004, and it was entitled "There Is a God," and it and it chronicles his journey from ardent atheism to to a scientific, scientifically backed rationale for his belief in a divine creator and move toward the Christian faith. It's an amazing story. There is a God. And you guess what he points it to? He says, the deeper I got into the world of biology, the deeper I got into the understanding of the complexities of this world, the engineering of nature, he called it. He said it drove him to this idea that says it is unexplainable that this could all come from random chance, that something greater has to be behind this. And so he says gradually he moved from, from an agnostic or an atheist worldview to a theist driven worldview and it's not just him it's famed people like the Oxford mathematician John Lennox that we talked about earlier or David Hunt, he is one of the leading mathematicians, he just passed away actually but he was one of the leading mathematicians from UCLA and he was an art spoken ardent Christian Uh, or we could talk about people like microbiologist Alexer McGrath who was one of the leading atheists in the early 2000s all the way up through his early uh, early parts of his career but now he has found his relationship with God and he has uh, become not only a Christian but he has theology uh, ministry and education chair at King's College in London. An amazing move, right? We could talk about people like Francis Collin. Some of you guys know Francis Collin's work, but you don't know his name. Francis Collin was the guy about 15 years ago who was given a grant by the government to map out the human genome. The human DNA. You you all hear the genome project? It was a major, major deal. Millions and millions of dollars were spent on it. And and Francis Collin was the lead biologist in the whole whole deal, right? And he went into this, he writes, that he was at best an agnostic, maybe an atheist. Uh, He went into it with pure scientific speculation. But after 15 years of study, at the end of the mapping out of the genome project, he ends up writing a book. And guess what the name of the book is called? The Language of God the language of God. And in this book, it's incredible. He, he maps out his journey, and he, and he goes back to this idea again that, that when you look at the complexities of this world, you look at the complexities of you, that it is just unexplainable, that random chance. And he says it was very difficult for him as a scientist, as a rational thinker, to remain atheistic, but had to move toward a theistic worldview because there has to be a cause. A cause a designer. Something that created all of this. And and this is the kind of stuff that's not shouted in the schools, is it? This isn't stuff that you read about, you know, in the news or you watch on television, is it? This stuff is kept from the general public in so many ways. And I don't understand why. Well, I do understand because there is a war against faith. There really is. Listen to this. David Bentley Hart, who is a uh, very popular philosopher, uh, theologian, and sociologist, he received his doctorate from Cambridge University. Um, and he says this, listen to this, very carefully. Listen, he says, quote, I do not regard true philosophical atheism as an intellectually valid or even cognate position. In fact, I see it as a fundamentally irrational view of reality, which can only be explained as an absence of curiosity or a fervently resolute will to believe the absurd. The case to believe in God is so much more inductively stronger than the case for unbelief that true philosophical atheism must be regarded as a superstition. That's pretty intense, right? And so we could literally go on and on and on about this. But here's my point. I'm just trying to make an understanding here uh, that there is a myth that says smart people don't believe. That that Christian faith is irrational and is unthoughtful. Friends, that is a myth. Many, many smart people, many smart people in this room have made the same decision as I have made. After studying and after thinking about this, they have moved their life into this understanding that there is a divine creator who wants a relationship with us. Okay, Here is my second thought, and it is the myth of openness. The myth of openness. If you listen to anybody who writes or speaks for the New Atheist Movement, they will tell you that people of faith have somehow been tricked into believing. They, They somehow have gone through life with their eyes shut that they simply do not want to believe. And so whenever there's an evidence of faith laid in front of them, they just grab onto it because they're just desperate to believe. They say that they are the open ones. They are the ones who, who are open and, and searching. Richard Dawkins himself, is, who is probably the most famous atheist in the world today, he is very fond of saying, I just am following the evidence. And if you don't follow the evidence, that's your fault. But all of the evidence points you away from God. He goes, I just want truth. Inferring that people on the other side simply don't want truth, right? Uh, friends, I don't think that's true at all. Humbly. I mean, really, really humbly. I, I, I say to you that I think everybody, even in this room... You have a faith position. Theists start their day with a faith position. And atheists, listen to me, friends, start their day with a faith position. Everybody has faith to something or in something. Everybody. Listen, uh, they can seemingly no more prove the non-existence of God than I can seemingly prove the existence of God, right? Right? Both are a faith position to some degree. As a matter of fact, Richard Lewontin, professor of biology and professor of zoology at Harvard University, these are very smart people. This is what he says with his approach to science. This is his approach to science. Now listen very carefully. He says, as scientists, we have a prior commitment to materialism. Did you catch that? He says, I already go into this thinking one way. I'm already committed to a material world, not a spiritual world. I'm already committed to this understanding that all things are simply physical. There is no metaphysical world. He says, uh, all science, as a scientist, we have a prior commitment to materialism. Now, listen to this. Listen to this. It is not that methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept the material explanations of this phenomenal world. In other words, it's not scientists that convince me to be an atheist. It's not science at all. Listen. He says, on the contrary, We are forced by our a priori, which means previous adherence to material causes, that we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Did you catch that? He he says, in other words, we don't want God to be real, so God can't be real. We don't want God to be real, and so no matter what evidence you put in front of us, we're going to find another excuse, another way around it. No matter what you say, it will never ever convince me otherwise. And so, friends, what is he really saying? We're not open. People on our side have a faith position as well. You know, one of the things that you hear all the time is that the church has been against science. Have you heard of this? Like going through school, that the church has always been backwards. Church has always fought science. You've been taught this, right? It's amazing. I I went to uh, several colleges. It took me uh, only three terms to get through school, Reagan, Bush, and Clinton, Uh, but I made it, and and, and it was amazing. Uh, The professors just had this agenda to to somehow say that that the church was always against science, that the church has always been backwards. But anybody who studies their history knows this is not true. Like, for example, um, when mathematician, astronomer, and Catholic cleric, Nicholas Copernicus, um, presented his uh, heliocentric view of the world, do do you understand what happened? So, um... Copernicus, he, he comes along and he basically says, hey guys, I've been studying this. He was employed by the Catholic Church to study science. And he comes to the church and he says, I've discovered something. The heliocentric view of the world was, it came to understand that the, that the earth is not the center of the universe. He was the first to say, no, 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 no. The, the sun is the center of the universe and the earth revolves around the sun, not the other way around. And do you know who was his major opposition against that? Was it the church? No, not at all. Who, who fought them? Who fought this worldview? It was the science community. It was the science community because they invested a thousand years of teaching that, that man was the center, earth was the center, and everything revolved around man. Isn't it funny? God teaches us that God is the center of all and that ultimately God is the center of, of everything and that your life should revolve around him right? And, and so it's, it's, I just find this interesting. Did you, you, you track forward a few years. In the 1920s, a guy named Edward Hubble perfected his telescope. You know this story, right? And he starts studying space. He starts uh, seeing that the space is expanding, that there's always more, and, it's, and it seems to be getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And he begins to put this theory together that we've come to know as the Big Bang Theory. Anybody ever heard of it? And almost everybody of all sciences agree that this thing called the Big Bang Theory is is correct, that there was this beginning point to everything. And so Hubble comes into the science community and says, hold on, guys, hold on, hold on. There is a beginning point to the universe, to the galaxies, to everything that is all matter, all energy, all space, all of it, all time, everything had a beginning point. And guess who resisted that? Was it the church? Was it? No. Guess who resisted it? Overwhelmingly, it took over a decade uh, for the science community, including Einstein himself, to catch up to this understanding. And why was that? Here's what they said. The science community said this, that, that, the, that the understanding that the earth came into existence at, this, uh, at a singular moment, all space, all time, all, all, all energy, everything in the galaxy came into uh, to existence at a single moment. They said, quote, it reeked of religion... And it sounded dangerously close to the Genesis chapter 1 account called creation. And so they utterly rejected it. And it was because it was called this ex nihilo experience of creation. You know what ex nihilo is? Anybody go to college? Anybody? Anybody? It's Latin for out of nothing. Out of nothing. Because here's why. Up until the 1930s, science taught this very basic understanding of life. That nothing plus nothing equals Nothing. What are they teaching us now? That out of nothing comes something. And we're just supposed to believe that, right? They switched it all around. But back in the 1920s when Hubble comes and says, no, 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 there has to be, because Hubble deduced that if, if there was a moment when it all began, nothing can produce nothing. And so there must have been something behind the nothing called the creator. And the science community says, no. that and and so friends uh what's uh you know because why because we we know now that that nothing can really truly produce nothing that it takes something right so for example like my wife and i like we'll be in in bed in the middle of the night and uh, there'll be a noise in our house and my wife is crazy she's like she hears something she's like "Ah!" and she's like one of the people wide awake she jumps out of bed like what's going on you know and and, and so she'll go did you hear that i'll say like any good husband no right and, uh, and she'll go, no, no, no. Did you hear that? And it had to be something. And like any good husband, I'll say, it was nothing, honey. And then my wife, she'll say something really brilliant like, that doesn't sound like nothing. It doesn't sound like nothing. Go check. And so I'll reach over and I'll grab my 9 millimeter and I'll say, you go check. And I'll hand it to her, right? You know? But, but let, me, let me ask you this question. So, so who is more thoughtful? Who is more rational? The husband that says, this sounds like nothing or the wife that says that doesn't sound like nothing? Who's more rational? Because it always takes something to produce something. Always, always. And so friends, here, here's, my, here's, my, here's my point. The scientific community has, listen, has, has made mistakes. Listen, for people like me, people of faith, um, absolutely, the church, throughout history, we have made terrible, tragic mistakes. We have been behind the curveball ball of history many, many times. Absolutely. But I just want you to know, so has the science community in very, very big ways. This is a human problem. Humanity sometimes takes a little bit to catch up to what's good and to what's right. You all with me on this? Okay. So here, here's my next thought. If you, it's okay with you, to move forward here. Uh, it's called the myth. I'm calling it the myth of evolution. And I know I get into this. People are going like to start throwing stuff at me, but there is this thing called the myth of evolution. That's what I believe. That's what I believe. So this idea... There is this push out there that says evolution has given us all of our answers, that we don't need God. Evolution has explained the origins of life, the complexities of life, the the complexities of morality and destination and all of these things, and thus there is no need for God. God is not real. And I'm going to tell you something, friends, just humbly, I don't believe that at all. I don't believe it at all. Uh, And I get it. I'm not the best thinker. I'm not the biggest thinker, not even in this room. But let's just pretend for a moment that evolution is true. Let's just go down this pipeline a little bit. If evolution is true and that there was this, they call it a speck of space dust. You've heard this, right? There's a speck of space dust that somehow gets together with another speck of space dust. And that becomes a more complicated speck of dust. And that goes on for, I don't know, just billions of years. And then, and then all of a sudden this non-living thing jumps over to be a living thing. Okay, y'all follow? This is is the evolutionary trail, right? And and so it it becomes this living thing, which is very simple at first. It's a single cell. And then this single cell somehow gets together with other single cells and becomes a more complicated cell. And eventually these uh, simple cells, which become a complicated living cell, now have somehow evolved into a fish, which somehow is going to evolve into a penguin. And then that penguin evolved into a donkey. And then the donkey evolved into some sort of ape. And then out comes you. That's basically the trail line for the evolutionary, you know, story, right? Now, let's just assume for a moment that that is true. All of it. Just just take it all. It's all true. Does that explain away God? Even if it's true, don't you still need a beginner for the beginning? Don't you need something to get all of that going? I mean, even if all of that was true, we can just say, okay, that, that explains all of the complexities of life. But does not... Explain away God. Not at all. There are massive assumptions that are going on. You you, you can't say that just because evolution is true that there is no God. You actually have to prove some things along the way. Friends, you can't just call a theory a fact. Do you recall that it is a theory? Anybody in the room? It is a theory. And you can't just call theory fact. You actually have to prove some stuff. Um, This is what we call classical evolution, right? And it's been taught to us for over 100 years. Uh, But it's... And, and it's defined us, and it's, it's saying that this is where we come from. We teach our kids this. But friends, you can't just make these assumptions. You have to prove things like original cause or first cause. You have to prove what they call the cause for extraordinary complexities. You have to, you have to look at these things that some of these other scientists are looking at and going, there is no way you can go from speck of dust to you. It just is not happening, right? And listen, this is so important. I want you to hear me. Uh, you actually have to prove the fossil record. You actually have to prove it. The fact is that there is no transitional fo- fossil record, and this is a problem, a very big problem for evolutionary belief. It really is. We have tons of fossils. You realize this, right? Tons and tons of fossils uh, of all sorts of forms. We have uh, fossils of penguins and whales and lions and giraffes and, and even humans and every, almost every life form that walks earth. We have fossil records for them. But do you realize we have no transitional fossils? None. Zero. Zilch. None. I want you to think about that for just a moment. You know, there are no transitional fossils that would be half horse, half whale, half zebra, half fish. Uh, we have none that are like half dog, half cat. That would be evil. That would be evil altogether, right? No, what we have are fossils of giraffes and we have fossils of, uh, of dogs. And, and there are micro changes, but there are no macro changes at all, friends. And friends, this is simply a big problem. I want you to check this out. This perhaps is one of the most important things you're going to hear the entire night. There's a man named Stephen J. Gould. Uh, he literally is the world, or was the world's leading evolutionary thinker uh, in, in the entire world. He really was. Uh, he is a very, very brilliant man. He's a microbiologist. And this is what he wrote before, his, uh, before leaving uh, his, his field, before retirement. He said this, quote, quote, the extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record persists a, as a trade secret of paleontology. Do you know what that means? He's like, there's a little secret, because a paleontologist is somebody who studies the, uh, uh, the, the fossil records. He's saying there's a little secret we have. We don't have the transitional fossils. There's a little secret. We've been telling kids all of this time, we've been telling students all of this time that we have these records. that tra- And here's the leading evolutionist in the world saying, I just got to be honest with you, we just don't have them. Now, listen to what he says next. This is going to blow your mind. The evolutionary trees that adorn our textbooks, and you know what he's talking about, right? Those little pictures that show like a single cell into a more complex cell that shows a bird, and then like some sort of like small creature into like a half creature, and then to an ape, and then into you. You've all seen that picture, right? You, yes? Okay, yes. So we've all seen this picture. Listen, he says, the evolutionary trees that adorn our textbooks have data only at the tips and the nodes of their branches. The rest is inference. However reasonable we might think that is, not in the evidence of fossils. It's not in the evidence of fossils. We might think it's rational that this picture's out there, but it's not actually found in the fossil records. Wow. Wow. We have built an entire worldview around this idea that our kids came from an ape. We have built an entire world view around this understanding that somehow we're just biologically uh, more complex because of because of time. And, And we've been shown this little picture since the time we were in grade school. And and what is he saying, friends? Think about what he's saying. He says, listen, what we have are the tips. We have the picture. We have you and me walking around. We got to explain you and me. So we're just going to make it all up going backwards. Because why, friends? We are not open to God. We are not going to allow God to be the determiner of who we are and where we came from. So we're going to figure out a plan B no matter where the evidence leads. And friends, that seems like a leap of faith to me. I'm just saying, that seems like a leap of faith. All right. All right, let's move on. You guys ready for one more? we have time for one more? Okay, listen. There is another myth, uh, and I'm going to call this one the myth of conclusion. It's this myth that science always draws the right conclusions. Come on, right? Uh, you can trust us. We're scientists. We've spent our lives studying this. We have way more degrees and letters behind our name than you have behind your name. You need to trust us because we are right. Well, let me ask you a quick question. Has anybody ever heard of something being bad for them? Anybody? Like, you shouldn't eat that because it's bad for you? Anybody? Anybody in the room? And then we're told it's really good for you, actually. Anybody? And then we're told it really was bad for you. You need to stop eating it now. And then when you stop eating it, you go, well, wait a second. It is really good for you. Anybody ever had this experience before? Right? So listen, they tell us, for a long time they told us, listen, that coffee is going to stunt your growth. It's terrible for you. It's terrible, terrible. It's going to kill you. And now they tell you a certain amount of coffee and caffeine every day is actually good for you, right? So for a long time, they tell us, they tell us uh, high fat was really, really bad, and then low fat is really, really good. But then they come along, and they switch it all around, and then they say, no, 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 we were wrong. you got to cut the carbs out of your life. Anybody hear this? you got to cut the carbs out of your life, and just eat all the fat stuff you want. It's great, right? <laughs> and then they tell us, listen, then they tell us chocolate, this is serious business, Chocolate is really, really bad for you. And then they tell you chocolate's really, really good for you. And then they tell us chocolate's really bad. Listen, I am a, I'm a Christian and I'm a deep thinker, but I really don't care what they say about chocolate because I love it. And I'm going to eat it anyways. And the truth is, this is what I'm saying, that, that we have to make some rational decisions on our own. You have to study it out for, for, for yourself. I want you to think about this for a second. Science tells us that we've decided that there is no God and we are smarter than you. We've decided that the cause of life is evolution and we are smarter than you. Friends, I just don't think I'm willing to go with that. I want you to think about something Stephen Hawking Hawkins wrote in, in his book called The Grand Design. Uh, many people think that Stephen is the smartest guy on the planet. I mean, literally, people say that he is the epicenter of human intelligence. And I'm just going to read to you his conclusive statements out of the grand design, okay? And this is not edited. This comes straight out of his book, okay? Listen to what he draws as some of the conclusions for life. Listen, listen. Because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing. Why the universe exists? Why, Why we exist. Now, I just want you to think about this. Look at, look at this statement. Look at these, he writes an entire book and this is kind of the sum, summation conclusion, right? Now, I'm either dumb or maybe I'm just not smart enough to understand this kind of a statement, but this makes no sense to me at all. None, zero, zilch, nada, none. Doesn't make any sense to me at all. This is pure speculation to me. This is nothing more than guesswork. This denies everything that we were taught in our eighth grade physical science class, right? He says this, because there is a law of nature, that's what he's talking about, a law of physics, law of nature. You you remember hearing about this in school. Anybody in the room? Okay. We did go to school, right? Collectively? Okay, good. Okay, so listen. Because there is a law of nature or physics, right, such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing, We were taught that laws did not create or do anything. Laws were systems of operation. They they are observations that are repeatable, observable, right? And always consistent. Laws help us to understand what's going on, but they actually don't make anything happen. Listen, in physical science, if I remember correctly, they taught us that physical science was a study of the natural world. And we were taught in order to study something physical, you actually have to have something physical to study, right? Are you with me so far? And the laws of physics is, is what was derived after observing the world. The laws of physics were these, this idea that, that certain things are observable, repeatable, and perfectly consistent. Like, for example, for example um, they're verifiable, like water. It always boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit. It's a, it's, a, it's a law of physics, right? It's a law of nature. Like, gravity is a law of nature. You throw something up, it's always going to come down, right? You all with me? Do we all agree? Okay, that's what a law is, right? And so the question is, is how can there be any laws of physics such as gravity if there isn't anything physical that exists? He's saying that there are laws of nature when there is no nature to observe. Does anybody find this incredibly hard to understand? Like I literally read articles trying to explain this little paragraph and I could not figure it out, and I don't think I'm a dumb person. But I look at this and I go, really? And so then, and then he draws this incredibly conclusive statement. He, he, he says this. He says he's trying to answer uh, this idea that that how do you, how do we explain where it all came from? This is his answer. He says spontaneous. Creation is the reason that there is something rather than nothing, why the universe exists, why we exist. He's trying to answer this question How can nothing produce something? And so he comes up with, like, he goes to college, he gets all these fancy words, and this is what he says. I don't mean to be a jerk to him, or I'm not trying to be anything, I'm not not trying to knock him down, but let me think about this. He says, Yeah, I know it's crazy, but things spontaneously create themselves. How is that science? Weren't we taught that science is observable, repeatable, and verifiable? Has anybody in the room lived more than 20 years? Anybody in the room? You've lived more than 20. Have you ever seen anything spontaneously create itself? Never, never once. It's never been verified ever once in the history of the world. Like you go into your kid's bedroom, it is a disaster. Do you go in and go, hey, what happened here? And your kids go, spontaneous creation. (laughs) It explains everything. There's gravity, there's gravity. So there's spontaneous creation. No, you go, you did this. Somebody had to be behind all of this. Look, real quick, I got, oh man, I'm running time. Okay, listen, listen. Uh, L, uh, there's this person. Um, they want us to say that because science thinks it, that settles it for the rest of us. We have no right to think. I'm just saying, no, no, you have every right to think. That's all I'm trying to say. That's all I'm trying to say. Listen, L- uh, Alistair McGrath, uh, McGrath, he holds a doctorate in both chemistry and microbiology. He's a former very famous atheist. He writes this, scientists know that they don't have to comment on everything. They know they don't have to comment on everything. Just what can be shown to be true by rigorous and testable investigation. Uh, science only seeks to describe the forms and processes of the world and declines to comment on issues of meaning and value. It stands above ethical, political, and religious, religious debates. Uh, and it is right to do so. In, in other words, this is where we started, right? That science and faith answer different questions, right? And they don't always come up with the same answer. But even if they don't come up with the same answer, it doesn't mean necessarily that we're wrong or that we're stupid or thoughtless. I, I just want to read one, one more thing to you. It's, it's a quote by a guy named uh, Berlinsky. Now, Berlinski's a, um he's a non-practicing Jew. He is He he describes himself as somewhere between an atheist and an agnostic. He is uh, ridiculously smart. He's got a Ph.D. in philosophy. He's got a Ph.D. in uh, mathematics. And he's got a Ph.D. in microbiology. Who goes to school for 35 years, right? Listen, listen, but these are smart people. And he wrote a book in response to Richard Dawkins' book called The God Delusion. Now, Richard Dawkins is a militant atheist. And Berlinski says, basically, I'm an atheist, too. But what you're asserting, Dawkins, is not truth. It's not true. You're trying to answer questions that cannot be answered by science. And listen to what he writes. This is so important. This is actually on the back flap of his book. His book is called The Atheist Delusion. The Atheist Delusion. Now, it's written by an atheist, basically. But he says that there are some things that we're delusional about, right? And you don't have to buy the book. You can just read this on the back cover. That's what I did, okay? And so listen. This is on the back cover of his book. This is amazing. He goes... Has anyone provided a proof of God's inexistence? Not even close. Has a quantum cosmology explained the emergence of the universe or why it is here? Not even close. Have the sciences explained why our universe seems to be fine-tuned to allow the existence of life? Not even close. Are are physicists uh, and biologists willing to believe in anything so long as it's not religious in thought? Close enough. Has rationalism in moral thought provided us with an understanding of what is good what is right and what is moral not close enough has secularism in the terrible 20th century been a force of good not even close to being close is there a narrow and oppressive orthodoxy of thought and opinion within the sciences close enough does anything in the sciences or in the phil- or or in their philosophy justify the claim that religious belief is irrational, not even in the ballpark. Is scientific atheism a frivolous exercise in in intellectual contempt? Dead on. That's Berlinsky, Outspoken agnostic. Does not have a claim to faith at all. He's not trying to convince anybody of faith. And, And so friends, listen. He's saying that science moves into territory that it is not able to answer. Listen friends, I am thankful for the world of science because it has changed our engineering. It has changed our medicine. It has changed our housing and development of life. And I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful for the areas in which it can speak with authority. But this idea that science has crushed God, that's a myth that's a myth. I hope that this has helped you on your journey. Uh, whether you believe or not believe, I hope that this will at least have given you some uh, real thought. Real thought this week. Think deeply about this stuff. Alright? Y'all good? Alright, let me uh, pray us out of here. Uh, thank you for, for listening, by the way. Um, Father in heaven, uh, we just take a moment and I realize that there are all different walks of life here. People who believe and don't believe and kind of people in between. I just pray that your spirit would speak into people's hearts. There is a place in our life that science cannot fill. There is a hole inside us that science cannot fill. I pray that you would fill that hole. I pray that you would speak into this room. Every man, woman, and child. Speak O oh God your child is listening Amen